Stephen Palmer's Hairy London. Episode 27. Jeremy had never set foot inside Juinefier's private chambers, so he was surprised to receive an invitation when he returned from Yom Gravelspit's house. But there it was, written on an acorn in black and white. Lady Bedwards requests the pleasure of the company of Jeremy Pantomile Esquire at his earliest convenience. She owned Bedwards' house, of course, and as a consequence had the run of the upper floors, which constituted a third of the building's interior space. Through the vine-haunted Burmia chamber he walked, then up the Iranian Pasha staircase and through the gold and silver Electrico arch, that forbade persons of unsavoury character from bothering her. He passed beneath that arch without setting off the alarm. She sat in her breakfast room, dressed in a flapper gown and ruby-buckled loafers, drinking tea, a half-eaten piece of toast on a plate before her. She looked tired. Damn, she looked unhappy. Such a shame. He smiled and approached, sitting on the chair beside her, crossing his legs and lighting a cigarette. I have a plan, he said. She returned his smile and, as was her wont, began fiddling with her diamond necklace, a habit he felt sure betrayed inner turmoil. Tell me, Cherimere, she said, though I support the Cockney uprising, at least in principle, and loathe Lord Gorge's government, I don't want battle in London, but neither do I want the Purley's revolution to succeed. All that will happen is that a new ruling class will be set up, as was the case in Parisi. I remember it well. Of course, you were there. But we digress. My plan involves playing one side off against the other, and you, Juinefier, will be the linchpin. Me? he nodded. I'm certain you've got the strength and character to do it. Now then, the one thing that most annoys the poor of the East End is how the upper classes, and even the middle classes, rule their lives. Though the ordinary cockney cleans and cooks and sells and labours and works all hours of the day and night, almost none is their own master. Jeremy paused, thinking back to his encounter with Sergeant Coff. It was a police officer who made me realise. The East End is a different country, he remarked. When I mentioned this to the Purleys, they gnashed their teeth in anger for they'd like the East End to be a separate country, ruled by them. Juinefier gasped. But how could that work? she asked. Don't you see, they want to run their own lives according to their own wishes. They're exploited by people living miles, often hundreds of miles away. Nobles, like me. Jeremy took her hand in his and leaned forward. Juinefier... You're a woman, and thus know injustice. All you have to do is transfer your feelings of injustice to the poor. They feel like you do, don't you see? It's no different. 
you're treated damnably bad by men, and the poor are treated damnably bad by the rich and the privileged. I know. I've seen it all during my adventures. She nodded. Her gaze focused upon some far-off imaginary place. You're right, she said. If women suffer, then so do the poor. He nodded. This, then, is the heart of my plan. I know the strategy of the Pearlies and the disposition of the uprising troops. Therefore, you've got that knowledge, too. Oh, Cherami, the burden. You can do it, Juinefir, and I will support you. It's me who'll be in most peril, a traitor to both sides. She nodded, a look of fear on her face. Don't worry. I'm made of stern stuff. You are a member of the Suicide Club, after all, he nodded. Now then, you need to approach Lord Gorge and demand to become a minister without portfolio in his cabinet, so that you can help direct the government's strategy, using the knowledge I transfer to you. We'll have to play it careful, though. We'll need to exaggerate the strength of the uprising, so that Lord Gorge is panicked and agrees to negotiate. Then you, and perhaps also me, will have to become mediators. A dangerous tactic, indeed, but preferable to the destruction of the uprising and the dreams of the Cockneys, and preferable also to blood-soaked revolution. I will do it, Schwinevere said. I will do it for all those who suffer in Britain. Cherami sighed and sat back. Good. Events were in motion. Later that day, they prepared the psychotronic equipment that would allow Cherami to partake of Schwinevere's conversations. The gear had been invented by the Kaiserish Johnny Herr Einstein and consisted of a number of electric nodules existing in Hilbert space. These nodules spoke to other nodules, rather in the manner of Sergeant Coff's multiple notebooks. And so, the day after, Juinefere went to Downing Street. Because of the hair, the distance and the battlefront, she travelled by aerial flimflam, piloted by Franklin Spartani, who swore a most terrible oath of silence. Franklin was a notable gobster, so Cherami and Juinefere insisted. Landing in St. James's Park, Cherami prepared the psychotronic gear, then pecked Juinefere on the cheek and wished her good luck. She walked away. She looked confident, even determined. Cherami cast an eye over her garb. Ah, sensible shoes and no jewellery. Leaving Franklin in the flimflam, he walked off into the park, settling beneath a chestnut tree to operate the gear. Already, Juinefere was speaking with the Downing Street guards. Juinefere said, My good man, I do not care who says nobody is allowed inside number 10. I am Lady Bedwards, and Lord Gorge is a friend of mine. Kindly tell him I'm here at once. The guard replied, uh, Yes, ma'am. Oh, sorry, ma'am, we have to check these... Hurry! The Cockney uprising is nearby. Cherami spoke softly into the syntactical expressor. Well done, she replied. 
They have a job to do, I suppose. Fifteen minutes later, she was in the Primrose office. Lord Gorge, how pleasant to see you. I don't believe we've taken tea since the hairy plague, what? Indeed not, Lord Gorge. I have two things for you, a request and information. Which will you hear first? I can never resist a request from a lady. My request is this. Because of these dangerous times, I wish to be a minister without portfolio in your cabinet. My dear, but you are a... A woman, yes. Will you then refuse the wisdom and strength of half London's population because of their gender? Well, it's most irregular, so unfortunately... And what will London's people think when they find out you rejected vital information simply because the informer was a lady? Well, you see, they will vote Labour, Lord Gorge. And then, when you are out, they will lynch you. Uh, most irregular, what? I would need to hear your information first. I need to be assured of your sincerity first. Schwinnevere, my dear, where did you of all people get this so-called information from? You are a socialite, not a secret agent. One might say you were a little addled, what? You forget I live in Bedwood's house, home of the Suicide Club. The men of the club know much. Ah, now I see. Then all we have to do is invite the informer chap here, what? I am the mediator, no one else, Genevieve replied. But why you? There came a pause. At a loss, Charamy whispered, Tell him you have, that you have, secret ties with the Pearlies. Because I will represent the stout hearts and wisdom of those who suffer in London. You know it's only a matter of time before everybody can vote. Was it not your party that suggested universal suffering? Great jumping in news. The woman was quick-witted. Yes, yes, I see your point. Another pause. Very well. It seems like you have a case, what? I will make you minister without portfolio, and you shall be in charge of negotiations, if any occur, between the cabinet and the uprising. Good. Thank you. And so you would like to know? I would indeed. Schwenefier then reeled off the exaggerated disposition that Charamy had devised the previous evening, and he was pleased to hear that she did not forget even one line of the list. Damned impressive. After another pause and the clinking of teacups, Charamy heard more. Um, a piece of Drattenberg cake, what? No, thank you, but there is one last thing. I do not want war in London. I do not want Charing Cross Road destroyed by battle. I do not want good men and women killed on either side of the divide, and I know you do not either. Despite your gruffness, Lord Gorge, you are a reformer, a liberal, and you know the people of this city stand in the right. Therefore, do the right thing. In history, some progressions are inevitable. Suffering is one such. I hear you. I hear you, what? Yes, I do hear you. And now I must depart. 
I will return tomorrow morning. Sharami sat back and let out a sigh of relief. The woman was a marvel. The British library was quiet indoors, but not empty. Felvine observed a few score men and women reading, writing, occasionally staring out of the windows. He walked up to the nearest librarian and said, Is Mr. Marx in today? The librarian pointed to a distant chair, where sat a figure in a crumpled coat and muddy boots. Velvine recognised the beard at once. Approaching Marx, he considered how best to open the conversation, but in the end, when Marx glanced up, he simply said, You remember me from Highgate Cemetery? Marx frowned. The imperialist was a clay figure. Velvine sat down in the chair next to Marx. I am a member, he said, of the Marxist-Leninist Workers' Movement of London. He paused, then added, And if you do not believe me, I know where they are based. He gave the address, then reeled off the four member names. Marx appeared unimpressed. So what made you change your mind, Mr. Orchardtide? Is it that you just want to be on the winning side? Velvine controlled his annoyance. It was a small boy, he said. A small boy who labours to this day, I hope, in a work factory on Grafton Place. I am happy enough to admit that I was wrong, but, Mr. Marx, we need your help. The Cockney uprising is rolling west, and soon it will reach Whitehall. We need a pamphlet, something written in your own hand, to enthuse the masses and to help us acquire more converts. Can you help, eh? Possibly, possibly. You support the Cockney uprising, then? Well, yes. Why? Because for every Tycho matchmaker there are ten thousand others in London, and the same number again in Manchester, where worked your esteemed colleague Engels, whose book, sir, I have read from cover to cover, and because I do not wish to see any more a tiny minority ruling the mass of ordinary people... But you come from that tiny minority, Marx interrupted. You were the scion of one of the richest families in England. Was, was a member. I am banished. Why, I even stole from my own family to support my continued work for the Marxist-Leninist Workers' Movement of London. It's not easy to believe you. Velvine tapped his finger on the scraps of paper by Marx's side. Write us a pamphlet, please, which I swear I will take back to the group. Then you can come down to the uprising and see for yourself. Your words echoed back to you by the grateful working class of the East End. At last, Marx seemed persuaded, if nothing else by Velvine's oratorial passion. Very well, he said, but if you have my work taken to the government the army, or any so-called noble house, I will have you blacklisted from every workers' group in town. Let me see your hands. Velvine, perplexed, reached out so that Marx could grab him by the fingers. Not bad, Marx muttered. A few calluses coming along. But you need to work much harder. Velvine pondered this. I could rescue Tycho, he said. 
Marx glanced up at him, as if to indicate by expression alone how unlikely he thought that eventuality. And what of love? he asked. My research continues. Who then have you questioned? Velvine, annoyed again, decided to oppose Marx by attacking. He replied, Tell me, do you believe, as Freud and Reich do, that man is a tabula rasa? Or do you side with Jung, who believes all men are born with unconscious personality already within him? Wrong-footed by this question, Marx peered long and hard at Velvine, then glanced away and said, mm, I suppose I side against Jung. Then we are born effectively a blank sheet of paper? Yes. Well, where then do our personalities come from? Marx considered, then replied, I suppose they come from the real world, from our experiences placed inside us through memory. This chimed more or less with what Velvine had decided before he went to war. Intrigued, he said, I concur. Do you suppose that more might be placed inside us, perhaps through the actions of our parents, our siblings, our family, etc.? I suppose that to be perfectly possible? Velvine considered. Then it must be that love and all the other psychological templates are also placed inside us, in such a way as to chime with the theories of the estimable Mr. Darwin. Again, Marx considered this point before answering. You mean, because we're all of the same species descended from apes, we all partake of the same mental template? Yes, sir. Marx smiled. The first time Velvine had seen this, and said, What a remarkable idea. What then shall we decide about love? Velvine felt ideas flooding his mind as the implications of his notion arrived. He replied, Though we all partake of the same mental template, we all grow up in different conditions, eh? The working-class man has a different experience of life to the imperialist. Therefore, it must be that we all approach love from different angles. And yet, every man and woman across the world experiences love in the same way? A true, 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 Velvine murmured. He thought for a moment, then said, You must be correct, Mr. Marx. Though we are all different in the circumstances of our lives, love is universal. It must therefore be an aspect of our mental template. Moreover, it must be a deductible aspect, as with any scientific theory. Velvine nodded, intrigued. That was a notion he'd never considered. By reasonable extension of what we've decided so far, he said, love must be an aspect of the process of placing experience inside us as we grow up. But what aspect? Silence fell over them. Velvine glanced up to notice a number of people staring, people who looked away when Velvine's glance fell upon them. He pondered what Marx had said, then had the idea of applying his own experience to the question. Mr. Marx, he said, you mocked me when I told you I was not married, but when I was younger I did have a... Uh, uh, it was difficult for him to say the word. 
I did have a sweetheart. Well, after a fashion. Who? Her name is Lilibet Spoonworthy. I reacquainted myself with her recently. In fact, she may have saved my life. But my point is, if a man truly, you know, if a man loves a woman? Valvine nodded. If that happened, would he not want everything possible for his beloved, eh? Including her freedom, her happiness, her enjoyment of life? He would want that. Marx replied. I certainly wanted that for my wife. Then this surely is what love must be. It is the way we most profoundly understand the beloved, so that they may experience the best of what life has to offer. After all, we enter this world knowing nobody, yet we, as a social animal, have no option but to know the people around us. Indeed, Marx said, then love, understanding, and freedom must be all the words for the same thing. Valvine felt excitement course through him. They must be, and though I have heard it said amongst cynical and often very young men that love is blind, the opposite must be true. Love is like spectacles. We see better through it. A remarkable analogy, sir. I believe I may put that in my pamphlet. Velvine felt very proud when he heard this. At once, Mark grasped his fountain pen and a sheet of paper and began to write, so that, after ten minutes, he had produced a pamphlet. He handed it to Velvine. This may be printed without further reference to me, he said. I will give it you freely. I see, Mr. Orchard Tide, you are indeed a changed man. What will you do next? Velvine replied, The Marxist-Leninist Workers' Movement of London is led by Silvia Fermicelli, who is not as energetic as I would wish. I shall give her this pamphlet as proof of my sincerity, then decide how best to acquire converts to the cause. He paused for thought, then added, And I may well rescue that poor lad Tycho, eh? I cannot stop thinking of him and that terrible workmaster. The working class has an excellent ally in you. Good luck, sir. They shook hands. Then Velvine left, emerging into warm sunlight at the front of the British Library. The eagle stood quiet, pecking at the pavement, but beside it stood the dung attendant. Not even the presence of this man, however, could depress Velvine's mood. I trust all is well, eh? Velvine said as he made to alight on the eagle. You are planning to fly off now, sir? Well, are you planning to stop me? No, the man replied. But do mind how you go, sir. With all this hair in town, every man and his missus is acquiring flying vehicularization, which means the skies are becoming crowded. The man doffed his cap. Just an observation, sir. I wouldn't want you to have an accident. Velvine unhitched the eagle and urged it into the air. He replied, and I wouldn't want you to have a compassionate thought. Silence enfolded the annular space between deadly mimosa tree and deadly chamber. At length, Bain cleared his throat and spoke. <clears throat> we must investigate further, he said. We must open the door and see what lies inside. Indeed, Cornucope agreed. 
But how? You said the door is sealed and beyond your capacity to open. Perhaps there will be letters beside the door that Estatia can read. They shuffled around the chamber to the door, which was visible as the thinnest of cracks in the external wall. Estatia tried to read the script, but Cornucope could see she was struggling. It's unlikely that Gandhi would have explicit entry instructions written beside the door, he pointed out. I can read some of these, Estatia said. They refer to times of day, of the year, like a calendar or plan of some sort. Mayhap entry is gained by some peculiarly Hindu method, Cornucope suggested. Estatia nodded. She became silent and Cornucope began to wonder if she was having second thoughts. If there is a machine inside, he said, we might be able to use it against the uprising. Estatia frowned. Nobody as practical as me would consider such a daft idea, she said. Be quiet, Cornucope. But the rabble, the government will parley with them, of course, Estatia snapped. Now do be silent while I think. Cornucope glanced at Bain. Then, certain Estatia's gaze was elsewhere, he gave an eloquent shrug. Bain did nothing to respond. At last, Estatia stirred and spoke. Kailash, she said. Nothing happened. Cornucope said, uh, What are you attempting? Words that may unlock the door. I see no handle, do you? Cornucope shook his head. Estatia continued to speak. Nandi, Trishula, Nataraja. Still nothing. Those words didn't work, she said. The names of his mount, his trident, and his name as Lord of the Dance. Hmm, I wonder. Omnama Shivahaya. The door slid aside without a sound, and Konukup faced a dark interior. At once, Bain took from his pocket an automatic candle, which he switched on. They peered inside the chamber to see a single object, a statue of Shiva, made, it seemed, of bronze. Slowly, like scared cats, they crept inside. The statue was no ordinary bronze of Shiva. In his four hands he carried weapons with great conical barrels, while beneath him... In place of Apazmara lay a simulacrum of Lord Gorge, the Prime Minister. The circle of flames surrounding Shiva was marked with atomic symbols. It is a weapon, a device, Bain said, intended for use against us by Gandhi's home rule cabal. We can use it against the Cockney uprising if we know its words of power, Cornucope said. Already, he saw the possibility of this remarkable creation. No! Estatia cried. Cornucope jumped. Her yell echoed around the polished interior of the building. No? He queried. Estatia rarely shouted. I won't be part of this, she said. Confronting Cornucope, she continued. You'll get no more Hindu words out of me. Do you seriously imagine a weapon should be used against thousands of innocent people? But they're not innocent, Cornico pointed out, becoming annoyed. They are disturbing the peace. It's the leaders who are guilty, if anybody, Estatia interrupted. The mob is just that, a mob. They're guilty of nothing more than starvation and lack of opportunity. 
and for centuries they've been exploited by the rich and powerful. I will not hear any more of this social equity talk, Cornucope retorted. This is verging upon Leninism. Don't you slander me, Stacia replied. Leninism? Have you seen me travelling to Bloomsbury then, is that it? Have I put a copy of Das Kapital in our bookcase? I, uh, I've never looked, Cornucope replied. Estatia seethed with anger. Then you think there's a chance I might have, she asked. Cornucope knew he could not back down, partly because of the presence of Bane, but more because he knew he was right. Estatia, for all her fine qualities, knew little of the esoteric world of politics and the empire. Dearest one, he said, glancing at Bane, this is perhaps not the place, and don't you tell me what I can say and when. I'm a functioning member of the British Society, Cornucope Weatherby. Have you forgotten what we've been through just lately? Escape from Swiss Cottage, Gandhi in the back garden of Number 10? Escape from cannibal tribes in Windsor Great Park, passing through war, and just who was it who gamed with death and won? Is this, and may I also remind you that I was a member of the rhododendron mob in Mumbai, with all the courage that entails? Or is your suicide club the superior organization because you're all men? No. Now use your loaf and think. With that, to Cornucope's astonishment, she turned to leave. Bane pulled out a pistol and said, Do not move, either of you. Cornucope gasped. Sir, he croaked, you are an agent of the British government, as are we. Do not tell me who I work for, Bane replied. Mrs. Weatherby, are you refusing to explore this device any further? Estatia put her fist to her hips and declared, Yes, I am, you stupid little man. Then you will remain motionless here, or I will fire to wound and disable you. Bane sidestepped to the chamber door, and, leaning out, shouted, Banksia! Banksia! Can you hear me out there? Through the mimosa curtain, a man's voice, muffled but intelligible, replied, Yes, sir. Can hear you quite all right. Arm five men and post them outside the tunnel entrance, then tell Spooner Watlington to get to the Royal Institute as fast as he can. Tell him to use the telegraphical Sidikai to call back the Gyre Falcon. He is to bring the Hindu mathematician Saraman here without delay. Yes, sir. Cornucope stared at Bane. What do you intend doing? he asked. Raman will know how many words relating to this Hindu totem. It's an image of Lord Shiva and must be respected, said Estatia. I shall call it what I like. Bane replied, enunciating every word. Cornucope raised his hands and held them out, palms up. Look here, old chap, this is ridiculous. We're both fighting the same enemy, are we not? The Bosch, the Leninists, Gandhi when he was alive. My wife here is a British heroine, if you take account of her work in Mumbai. You will not blather your way round me. Bane replied. All that matters is that we activate this device. Then, as you kindly pointed out, we shall have the pearly king and the pearly queen by the short and curlies. 
Yes, but a plan I seem to recall you supported, Mr. Cornucope Weatherby. Cornucope said nothing. Events had spiralled out of control. He turned to look at Astatia, but she folded her arms and walked behind the statue. Bane again walked to the entrance and shouted more orders. Returning to Cornucope, he said, You two will be an inconvenience when Raman arrives, so I shall escort you to the southern end of the glasshouse. With no other option, Cornucope and Astatia were forced to crawl back along the tunnel, then proceed, under armed escort, to the distant edge of the glasshouse, where they sat on barrels of Tamil wine. A mournful guard watched over them. For a few minutes, nobody said anything. Then Estatia stood up and said, I need to go to the convenience of the lady. Uh, the what, ma'am? The necessary of ladyfolk. That toilet, Cornucope grunted. The guard looked about, then grinned. Use that bush, he chortled. To Cornucope's surprise, Estatia agreed, walking towards the bush at once, then vanishing behind it. Silence. More silence. The guard began to fret, then told Cornucope, Go see what she's doing, old man. Cornucope went to look, nobody about. He span around. She has escaped, you idiot. At once, the guard blew on a whistle and ran to the nearest door, opening it to peer out. Cornucope did likewise, but saw nothing moving amidst the greenery and mats of hair. A few minutes later, he heard pattering feet. He turned round to see Bane and a detachment of armed soldiers. Uh, she's escaped, sir. I can see that, you dozy oaf, Bane replied. He turned to Cornucope and said, Well, we do not need you two any more that Raman is about to arrive. You can go. Go? Where? Outside Kew Gardens. If you do not, I shall order you thrown out. But... My place is here, serving the government. Bane positioned himself two feet in front of Cornucope and said, It seems that you have a decision to make, Mr. Weatherby. Will you stay and work with us, or will you go out to rescue your wife? Cornucope ground his teeth together out of frustration. Half of him desperate to serve his country, the other half desperate to save his wife from a hairy fate worse than death. And at the heart of this dilemma was the sneering visage of Bane Flamarashet. You dastard, he said. I shall have your testicular orbs for this. I shall have your testicular orbs, sir, and display them upon London Bridge. He raised himself on tiptoe to conclude, on a spike. But Bane laughed. <laughs> I do not think you have the balls. You've been indulging in Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, narrated by R.D. Watson. <laughs>